Holy Spirit, rain down. Come on. Good morning. How are you feeling today? Good. So I am not the pastor of Gold Avenue Church, um, but I was invited to preach this morning, and I haven't done this a lot, so this is a tremendous opportunity for me, uh, and I'm really excited to be here. Um, I believe that Lord wants to meet us in the text today, and I'm just excited to see what he wants to do. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4, and going through verse 8. It's a what page? 1703. 1703. So as you're turning there, um, I'll just take a minute and remind us of where we are in this story. So remember, after Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, his disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. And they wait there for a time. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. Tongues of fire rest on their heads. They speak the gospel in many different languages as the Spirit enables them. And the church explodes with new converts. The entire religious system of the day is flipped upside down. And they're facing fierce opposition. We've heard this over and over and over in the last uh, couple months as we've been going through Acts, as they face opposition. But despite these barriers, the Jesus movement uh, has has uh, become an unstoppable force in the world. You remember apostles Peter and John? Uh, they were arrested for healing a lame beggar. Um, his name was Derek, if you were there that morning. Uh, not really, but that's what Pastor Dave thought or said. Um, and they let him go because they, they could not deny the healing. Uh, a little later, the apostles were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel in the temple. And that very night, they were miraculously freed from prison by an angel of the Lord. And they went back to the temple to preach the gospel. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've heard about Stephen. Stephen was a martyr, which means he was killed for his faith. He boldly proclaimed the gospel, knowing full well that he'd be stoned for it. Uh, and that's where we are in our text today. So if you'll read with me Acts 8, I'm actually going to start at verse 1, which we read last week, and I'll finish at verse 8. On the day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all played, paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed were lame, or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. The word of the Lord. So the main point that I'm going to talk about this morning is that God works through difficult circumstances and through people available to him to bring his barrier-crossing love, which results in great joy. So when I was 10 years old, uh, there was a movie released called Mrs. Doubtfire. Have any of you seen Mrs. Doubtfire? Okay. Um, if you haven't seen it, this is a comedy between uh, or of Daniel and Miranda Hillard. 
And uh, they face a struggle that's common to many of us, unfortunately, of divorce in a custody battle. Um, so the divorced father, Daniel Hillard, is deeply troubled that he has such little access to his children. He's willing to do literally anything to see them. And so he does what probably none of us would ever do. And he assumes the identity of a 75-year-old British woman named Euphigenia Doubtfire. Pretty wild. So he's got the mask, he's got the makeup, the pantyhose, bodysuit, I mean the whole thing. It's, it's funny, uh, a little weird. And, but through this series of incredibly awkward and hilarious events, um, eventually his true identity is exposed and, and his children see, oh, whoa, this is my dad, he's not supposed to be here, what in the world is going on? So towards the end of the movie, uh, the recently divorced couple is sitting before a judge. Uh, for a follow-up custody hearing. And uh, the judge says that due to Daniel's peculiar and potentially harmful behavior of lying to his family and dressing as a woman and all that, the judge is about to grant full custody to Miranda, his wife. But before doing this, he asked Daniel if he has any closing remarks. And he says this, he says, Your Honor, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've gotten housing. I've gotten a good job. In regards to my behavior, I can only plead insanity because I'm crazy about my kids. Ever since the moment that I laid eyes on my kids, ever since the day that I held them in my hands, I was hooked. I would do anything for them, anything. Telling me I can't have my kids is like telling me I can't have air. I can't live without my, I can't live without air and I can't live without my kids. I would do anything. And he pleads, Your Honor, please don't take my kids from me. I would do anything for them. They need me, and I need them. I think for any parent, the thought of having our kids taken away from us is literally one of the most heartbreaking and painful things we can imagine. And I know some of us in this room have experienced this deeply. We would do anything to get them back. So through the humor of this movie, what we see is the heart of a father who desperately longs for his children and is determined to overcome any barrier that gets in the way, whatever it takes, and nothing can stop him. And this is where we find ourselves in the text, is a God the Father who is longing for his children in Samaria who have been separated from him for a long time. So in the text... Uh, Luke uses this word that the church is being destroyed by Saul uh, and scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We're left wondering what is going to happen. You've got this small band of Christians. They're, they're facing a monstrous Roman Empire. They're facing a religious system that's breathing down their necks and dragging them out of churches and homes and imprisoning them and slaughtering them. This seems like a pretty impossible task and the barriers are overwhelming. There's three of them in the text that I want to look at this morning. Three barriers that are keeping the gospel from reaching Samaria. Persecution. Second is the cultural, political, and religious norms. And third is spiritual bondage. So first, um, the church is being heavily persecuted by the religious zealots. Uh, In verse 3, it says that Saul is destroying the church. Other translations use the word ravaging. Uh, the Greek term is equated with an animal mangling its prey. Um, this is really brutal. Um, 
Saul is not just imprisoning Christians, but he's trying to eliminate Christians from the earth. This is religious cleansing. He wants to put an end to the whole movement. We can hardly imagine our own family members being dragged out of churches and dragged out of our homes simply for being associated with Christianity. But this is the reality that Christians were facing. They're being beaten, imprisoned, and killed just for being Christians. So we got to ask, like, in this kind of setting, how is the gospel going to reach the ends of the earth? Second barrier are the cultural, political, and religious norms. I want to camp out here for a minute because they're significant. Uh, the first one we see is deep-seated racism against the people of Samaria. So they were considered racial and religious half-breeds by Jews in Jerusalem. Um, this came to be, we read in 2 Kings 17, that back in 722 BC, uh, the Assyrians invaded Samaria. They intermarried with them, uh, and, and, and those who remained in the land, they adopted Assyrian pagan rituals and the language and culture. They even set up a temple outside of Jerusalem. Uh, so their ethnicity and their religion was now considered tainted. They were rejected, outcasts, and hated by the true Israel. Uh, and they became known as Samaritans. You may have heard some stories about Samaritans before in the New Testament. This is a big deal in the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, and it was common knowledge that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Another cultural barrier is Philip's ethnicity. So we see Philip in this text. His ethnicity, uh, before he became a Christian, he was a Hellenistic Jew. So a Hellenistic Jew meant that he practiced the religion of Judaism, but he lived in a Gentile nation. So he would have spoken Greek, not Hebrew. He would have uh, had culture, experienced the culture of Gentiles, not the Hebraic culture. And so even Philip uh, had this tension against the Hebraic Jews who lived in Jerusalem. In a culture that frowned on any non-Jewish influence, Philip was compromised. He was considered somewhat of an underqualified and religious and ethnic half-breed. Even the church at this time really didn't know how to handle this tension as you read all through the story of Acts. One more cultural and political reality dominating the scene is the Roman Empire. It's monstrous. It controls the whole world. Demands fierce loyalty to Caesar. So if Caesar was God um, and you didn't submit to Caesar, you died. And everyone knew it. This was the norm. So how could a church that's proclaiming that Jesus is God really thrive in this kind of setting, in this culture? So between the hatred towards Samaritans, the ethnicity of Philip, and the dominance of the Roman Empire, the cultural barriers in this story are really overwhelming. The third barrier I want to talk about is the spiritual barrier. So we see it playing out on two fronts. We heard about this the last couple weeks. Um, on one side is the entire Jewish religious system that is blinded to the gospel. Um, they're literally putting their, their hands over their ears so they can't hear the truth. On the other side, we have the Samaritans who have been practicing pagan religion for almost a thousand years. It is deep-seated. Um, they have, they are demon-possessed, we read in the text. They have been socially and spiritually outcast. We can only imagine the, the state of chaos that they might be living in. So in this setting, 
how is the gospel going to move forward? And that's where we get to go this morning. Because it's right here in the midst of persecution, in the midst of cultural and religious tensions, in the midst of people living in deep-seated spiritual bondage, that we see Philip go down to a city in Samaria to preach the gospel, cast out demons, and heal the lame. This re- uh, and, the, and the city receives his message and rejoices. This is pretty amazing. In spite of all these points of resistance, Philip is the first person to bring the gospel to Samaria. The gospel has never gone to Samaria until this point. Next week, uh, we're going to hear from Mark. He's going to be preaching out of Acts 1, which includes Acts 1, verse 8, which might be familiar to some of us. This is considered the thesis statement of the entire book of Acts. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in our text today, we actually see this unfolding in real time. This is exciting. The barriers are being overcome, and the gospel is setting captives free in America, in, in America, in Samaria, and America. Come Lord Jesus. So, I want to look at how God is overcoming these barriers, because I think this is where he really wants to meet us in the text today. You see, all of these barriers that are preventing the gospel from reaching Samaria, the barriers themselves actually became bridges for the gospel to reach them. As I was reading this, I just was struck at how ironic this was, and yet saw the wisdom of God that the very things that are preventing the gospel become the bridges. Look at the persecution. Persecution has scattered believers all throughout Judea and Samaria. The same word in this text is often used elsewhere in scripture, and it's referred to the spreading of seed. So these Christians are filled with the love of God and the message of the gospel. It's burning on their hearts, and persecution spreads them like seeds all throughout Judea and Samaria, where they're planted, where they reach good soil. This may bring to mind a a parable in Matthew 13 where Jesus talks about a farmer who sows seed. Some of it falls on the path, some on rocky ground, some on on weeds, uh, and some on good soil. And it says it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. We see this happening. So persecution actually is the vehicle that God used to spread his church into places that were ready to receive the truth. God didn't cause the persecution, but he used it for his glory, to bring redemption. So we see barriers becoming bridges in the cultural and political barriers as well. Um, How would God overcome these? Here again, we see the wisdom and sovereignty of God. Samaria was an area historically off-limits to the apostles. So in Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus says this to his 12 apostles, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus actually tells the apostles, don't, don't go to Samaria. And so the apostles, we even see in the text, they don't. But who did he use? Philip, a half-breed, a half-breed Jew to go to a half-breed people, a Hellenistic Jew going to the Samaritans. It was the bridge for the gospel to penetrate this area. He had a plan. God had a plan. And there was nothing going to stand in the way. 
So finally, God uses Philip to also break through a spiritual barrier in Samaria. The text says the people of Samaria paid close attention to his message because why? It was validated by acts of power. He cast out demons. He healed their lame and their paralyzed. So these signs proved that God was behind the message and the messenger. We can almost hear the people in Samaria, if we, if we can kind of enter into their situation, this guy comes, this Hellenistic Jew, and he preaches a message, but it's like, there's something different about this guy. He's, he's not normal. You know, maybe, maybe there really is a Messiah, like he's saying. Maybe there really, maybe there really is eternal life. I mean, if he just set me free of my demons, maybe he can set me free from sin and death. If he just healed my legs and I can walk and I couldn't walk before, maybe I really can walk with him into eternity. This is powerful stuff. So the message that Philip carried, that he preached, carried weight because God's power was evident in him. God knew exactly what the Samaritans needed. He knew they were desperate for Messiah. So when Philip shows up on the scene, in what was probably the darkest and most intimidating place on earth, God gives him authority to preach and to heal. And we see darkness fleeing in every direction. Oppression, anger, rejection, fear, hatred, hopelessness, fleeing in the name of Jesus. God turned their spiritual bondage into a testimony of his love and faithfulness. So in all these, we see God using these barriers as bridges to take a people that were long cut off from him to bring him to his own and call his children. God is at work through difficult circumstances. He is using those who are available to him. So we've talked about the difficult circumstances. I want to talk a bit about Philip's availability to be used by God. This is where I get real excited. This guy is facing death death threats for preaching the gospel. So what does he do? Well, he preaches the gospel wherever he's going as he's running for his life. It's not normal. This is not normal behavior. He finds himself in a Jewish, he finds himself as a Jewish Christian in Samaria among a people who hate Jews and who are hated and hated by Jews. So what does he do? Well, he casts off their demons and heals their sick and paralyzed. This is not normal behavior. So when we read this, I think we're just compelled to ask, what does Philip have? What is motivating him to face such overwhelming resistance? and accomplish such an impossible task. I want to make two observations. One, Philip, he's just available to God. He said yes. Whatever God wanted him to do, he said yes. He was wholly surrendered to him. This is important. Surrender is, is a huge part of this. But I want, to, I want to make a second observation. What got him to that point of surrender? And I think this is really important. It leads me to my second observation, that Philip, he was familiar with the barrier-crossing love of God that overcame barriers in his own heart and life. So before Philip made himself to be available to be used by God, he made himself available to be loved by God. Did you catch that? Before he made himself to be available to be used by God, 
he made himself available to be loved by God. He clearly had encountered a love that overwhelmed the cultural and religious tensions he grew up in. He encountered a love that didn't require him to work to earn salvation. He encountered a love that came down and met him where he was. And it set him free. It was the barrier-crossing love of God in Philip's own life that compelled him to cross the barrier and bring God's love and hope and freedom and joy to the lost in Samaria. I find this really interesting. If you notice in verse 5, it says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Why did he go down? So I looked it up on a map. Geographically, uh, Samaria is north of Jerusalem toward a mountain range. So why, why would it say he went down? And we've, if we understand the ancient Near Eastern Jewish mindset is that uh, Jerusalem is the center of the universe. And so anything outside of Jerusalem is down. And Philip, this is his worldview. This is what he understands. And so we see Philip willingly, knowingly humbling himself to go down to a people who were rejected by his own people for almost a millennium while his own people were trying to kill him. Philip knew how to love across barriers because Christ's love crossed barriers to find him. It's Christ who didn't consider equality with God as a thing to be used to his own advantage. But he humbled himself and became nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He came down to us. He humbled himself. And he he humbled himself to death and death on a cross. The most horrifying death, the most excruciating death, the most humiliating death. It's for this reason that nothing, nothing on earth would ever stop Philip from crossing any barrier to bring this love to those who least deserved it. And this is the same love that we celebrate today. So today, is God still working out his plan of redemption through difficult circumstances? Yeah. Is he still encountering people with his love? Absolutely. Is he using us for his purposes? Yes. And does the Father still desperately long for his children to know him, those who are lost, regardless of any barrier that's in the way? That's his heart. And God is using people who have encountered his love to cross racial barriers, to cross cultural barriers, to cross religious barriers, emotional barriers, socioeconomic barriers, spiritual barriers. He is doing it. I'm going to share a story um, of how I've seen this being played out. But honestly, I feel like there are so many stories I could tell and how this plays out right here in our own community. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And one thing I love about this church is this is a barrier-crossing church that is familiar with the love of Christ. Uh, so five years ago, half a dozen students moved into the West Side to live in Christ-centered community, to grow in the relationship with God and be used by him. Uh, they're part of our eight-month discipleship program that we run at Bridgetree House of Prayer called the Mission School. Uh, these students were ages 17 to 19, mostly white kids from the suburbs, moving into our neighborhood, and they moved into a building formerly known for drugs and prostitution. Um, they crossed the boundary there. 
Well, there's this elderly woman that lived right next door to, uh, to the house where the students live. Uh, even though I lived a block away from her as well, um, I had never met her before. In fact, many people never met her because she, she was suffered from extreme social anxiety. Um, she very rarely would even leave the comfort of her, her own apartment, let alone talk and have conversations with people. Uh, she was living in bondage. She was gripped by fear. It, it ruled her, every part of her life. And it left her in a state of extreme isolation. She was afraid and alone. So our students started walking next door, knocking on her door. And it started out as really short, awkward conversations. Um, but they, they, they were persistent. Every week, a couple times a week, they'd knock on her door. They started bringing her cookies. They started writing her notes of encouragement and cards and things. And those short conversations started to turn into longer conversations. Uh, she started to come out more. She actually invited her into our own space and, and shared meals with her. And it was amazing to see this, like, renewal happening. Like, this emotional bondage that she was living under just started to be lifted. And it was, and she started to become more free. She started to smile more. She started to talk. She started to ask questions. She started to engage in relationship. I don't know what, what wounds and barriers she had in her life but just by the love of these 17, 18, and 19-year-old kids, this you know, 60-some-year-old woman began to experience true freedom. I want to share this story because uh, she is now one of the most joyful people I know. Incredibly joyful. She spends most of her time outside of her apartment. She's riding her bike. She's walking around the neighborhood. She's in our coffee shop. She's um, just sharing life. Anytime I run to her in the sidewalk, she, she'll greet me or anybody she knows with this massive smile. She'll just stop and smile and say, how are you? And it's one of those smiles that just you feel valued and you're like, yeah, like it's like almost overwhelming. Like, whoa, <laughs> there's so much joy. And, and it's the Lord. It's the freedom that he brought in her life. So nobody told these students to do this, but they were compelled by a love. They were compelled by a deep love that, first of all, they knew that Christ had crossed the barrier and encountered them in significant ways so they could cross this barrier. They they crossed uh, a cultural barrier. They crossed a socioeconomic barrier, an age barrier, an emotional barrier, and many spiritual barriers to extend God's love to a lonely elderly woman gripped with anxiety, a woman whose life is now marked with great joy. So before we close, I want to take a few minutes um, to examine our own hearts. So there's two questions before us this morning. First, I want us to actually just kind of maybe close our eyes and envision who comes to mind when I ask, who are the people around us? Who are the people around us who, like the Samaritans, are cut off from the good news of the gospel? Are there people around us who are being overlooked? Are there people around us that we avoid? And as we consider that question, I want to ask you a second question, and that's this. If we're not motivated by a love that crosses barriers and moves us into uncomfortable places like this, then what is motivating us? 
Is it our insecurities? Are we afraid of being rejected? Are we afraid of failing? Maybe we'll get it wrong. Are we too attached to our own comfort, our own security? Even in our interactions with others, maybe maybe we avoid conversation with people that are different than us or make us feel uncomfortable. Maybe when we're, we're having conversations with certain people, we, we constantly wonder what they think of us. Or maybe we're, we're thinking of reasons we're better than them. What's motivating us? As we examine the motivations of our own hearts this morning, I hope that we can draw near to the heart of the Father. Because whether we realize it or not, He is at work. In difficult circumstances, He's turning barriers into bridges because He is desperate for His children to know His love and experience great joy. This message is not about us doing more work for God. The message this morning is about the work that God is doing in us. So before we make ourselves available to be used by God, let's make ourselves available this morning to be loved by Him. Let's get familiar. Let's get familiar with the barrier-crossing love of God. And if we do, I believe this love burning inside us will compel us to reach the unreachable so that they will be set free and know the love of a good Father and the joy He brings. Let me pray. God, I pray uh, with the the author of Hebrews this morning that since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, of Philip we heard about this morning, of Stephen, the apostles, of the prophets and all the fathers of the faith, God, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which so easily entangles. God, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking not to the barriers in our way but to Jesus our eyes fixed on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because, God, it's for the joy set before you that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, meet us in your love and use us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.